Our Father, we thank you for your greatness. We thank you that your throne is in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. We thank you that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. That's why even as we are living in this remarkable and um, astonishing period of history, we do not fear and we do not fret because as someone has said, it looks like it's all falling apart, but actually it's all coming together because you have a sovereign plan and you are overseeing all of this. You raise up rulers, you set them down. You raise up nations, you set them down. You outline this for us in some detail in Daniel and then some in Ezekiel and other passages in the Old Testament. And then in Revelation, it's there. And we thank you that although we don't have all of the understanding about the timing of the last days, we have enough to know that you're calling the shots. And that means you're calling the shots today. And you'll call them again tomorrow. And you'll raise them up and you'll set them down. It's what you do because you're God. And <laughs> you cannot be thwarted. You cannot be frustrated. We get frustrated at times because we don't understand your timing. And we wish that you would act now, immediately, but you don't. Well, we have to. We have to learn to live with that because you know what's best. Just like our three-year-olds and our four-year-olds and our five-year-olds have to learn to live with parental decisions. And even as they get older, and the older they get, the less they want to comply. We all want it done our way in our time. Now that can hit us as men, as adult men in our walk with you. So often in Scripture, you use the word wait. We don't like that word. We're not interested in that word because we want to get our agenda accomplished and we don't like being frustrated and we don't like sitting at red lights on the way here. We want to move and we want you to move, but we have to learn to trust. And what we don't understand and what we can't comprehend, we just have to take a step back and remember that you are the God of all wisdom and power. All wisdom. A lot of times we move and it's the wrong thing to do. We've all done that. You've never done that. You've never made a misstep. You've never made a mistake. You, you have no regrets in the big picture. Oh, there have been times when you said from a standpoint, you regretted that you created man. That's one of those things where you speak to us in terms we can understand. But 
you knew what they were going to do before they did it. Because you're God. You have a plan. And it will be accomplished in the world, in this nation, and in our lives. Help us to grab onto that tonight. Help us to get it in our minds and hearts. And if it will take root, we'll sleep well tonight. He whose mind is stayed on thee, thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. We would ask that for us tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Jim Dennison does a newsletter every morning, Monday through Friday. He comments on the news and ties it in with scriptural truth. It's, uh, I think it's the Denison Report, if I'm not mistaken. This, um, either yesterday or today, this came along with his daily feed. He wrote these words, over the past four decades, I've been following cultural developments with professional and personal passion. Longtime pastor, professor, Christian leader. After nearly 40 years of observation, study, and research, I'll say this, and he's got three bullet points. I've never been as concerned about the trajectory of our culture as I am today. Secondly, I've never been as convinced that evangelical Christians face unprecedented condemnation and opposition as I am today. Third bullet point. And I've never been as burdened about the future of our nation and the threat of divine judgment the threat of divine judgment as I am right now. And then he says this, it feels as if I have been building an ark all of my life and now it's starting to rain. It was yesterday morning I read that. I actually highlighted it. This afternoon Mary said to me, did you see that thing from Jim Dennison yesterday? He had three points. I said, yeah. She said, and then he said, it feels as if I've been building an ark all my life, and now it's starting to rain. I said, yeah, I saw it. I'm going to use it tonight. <clears throat> she said, you know, Steve, you ought to pull out that book you wrote 20 years ago, Get in the Ark. And I thought for a minute, and I thought, what? Because honestly, I'd forgotten I'd done the book. <laughs> I'm being really honest with you. Because I've done about 20 books, and out of all the books I've done, that is the absolute worst-selling book that I ever put out. <laughs> I mean, my cousins bought it because I wouldn't give them a free copy. And then they gave it, I don't, I'm just messing around now. But I honestly have pretty much forgotten about that book. It wasn't real popular because people don't want to hear about judgment. 
but it's in Scripture. And there are, there are facts in Scripture that are very clear about the holiness of God, about the love of God, about the mercy of God, about the long-suffering of God. But Scripture is also very clear that there is an end to the long-suffering. And we've discussed in here, as of late, Romans 1, we've discussed it for a number of years. But there's a certain point where if you want to continue to rebel against God and go against God, and, and you're absolutely determined to get your own way, the worst thing that could happen to you is that he'll let you go your way, and he will give you over. That's Romans 1.18 down to the end of the chapter. And three different times in there, it says, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. And the last thing that he gives them over to is a reprobate mind, which is an unthinking mind, which is an illogical mind, which is an irrational mind that prompts people, individuals, and leaders of nations uh, to make decisions and live their lives in a way that they, are, that they demonstrate that they really, their minds do not function because they have suppressed the truth of God. And what happens is they become morally insane and spiritually insane. We're going to be in John. But we'll stop off at Job. Job 12 talks about what happens when leaders of nations, leaders of families, leaders of anything, go morally and spiritually insane. In Job 12, verse 23, speaking of God, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. That's history, the rise and fall of great nations. And, you know, you can do the research on that. Nations rise, nations fall. But see, God's behind it. God's behind it. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Now watch this. He deprives of intelligence. the chiefs of the earth's people. He takes away their intelligence. He takes away their, their minds. He takes away their ability to reason with clarity and with perspective and with truth. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now that's who's calling the shots in this country. And that's who's calling the shots around the world. And it's all according to the plan of God. So that helps me to know that he's got these insane people he's got them on a leash and they're not going beyond what he has determined are the boundaries because he restrains and he's in charge is it proverbs 21 1 the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the lord he turns it whatever way he wishes. And sometimes they want to go evil, and he'll let them go evil. God is never the author of evil because of his moral character. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's ab he's absolute moral purity. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. 
but evil is a tool on his, uh, on his Swiss army knife. And when he permits evil, he always redeems evil. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. For good. All right, now would evil come in under the category of all things? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we know. And do you know? Do you know? Because sometimes we forget. Sometimes I forget. And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God. He works all things. So even the evil that happens to us, even the evil that happens to people that we love, even the evil that breaks our heart where we see people in other parts of the world whose lives are just destroyed and what they're dealing with. But if you're in Christ, he turns it all to good. He doesn't say when, he doesn't say how, he just says that he'll do it. So when we look around at what's going on and when Denison gives his three bullet points here, and as I'm reading the three bullet points, I'm looking up and I'm seeing guys nodding in agreement. We're all concerned because it feels as if I've been building an ark all my life and now it's starting to rain. So in Genesis 6, and we don't even really need to turn there, you've got Noah, and there's such wickedness on the earth. There's such wickedness on the earth that God's going to send judgment. And there's one righteous man named Noah. And, and there's a span of 120 years. And we're not sure how many years he spent building the ark, somewhere 40, 50, maybe 75 years, different, you know, it's not, it doesn't tell us exactly. But you put the pieces together and somewhere during that 120 years, he was a righteous guy. He was preaching the truth. And then he began to build an ark because God was gonna send a worldwide flood and it was gonna rain, it had never rained before. That's not how God irrigated the earth. Um, he was the only righteous man. The only righteous man. But he, he kept with it. He kept with his God-appointed task. You keep with your God-appointed task until God releases you. Until God releases you, you keep going. Doesn't matter what the results are, doesn't matter what the response is. Jeremiah ministered for 40 years, and as best we can tell, he had one convert in 40 years. Maybe two, maybe. The one guy is clear. Those aren't the results we're looking for. But that was his task, and that was his calling, and he was called to be faithful. So Jeremiah was faithful, Noah was faithful. He stayed with it. He's not getting any positive feedback. It's more than likely that what he was getting was uh, he was being mocked. He was being, being ridiculed as that, you know, that lumber was pulled in there and it started taking shell. Oh, oh that's, that's hilarious, yeah. What is wrong with you? I mean, he was mocked. He, he was ridiculed. He was persecuted. And he's telling them the truth. And at the end of that 120-year period, here it comes. And the only family, there were eight people that were saved. 
How many thousands heard the truth? But if there were only eight people, it was Noah and his wife and his three boys and their wives. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. All of us in this room can trace ourselves back to either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. You come from one of those three lines. Isn't that interesting? But nobody else got into the ark. We're all sensing that the rain has begun to fall. And it's coming down quickly. It's coming down. Someone used the word last week in a conversation I had. They used the word velocity. And I've latched on to that word. Because all this stuff is coming with great velocity. This rain is coming down with velocity. And there's only one place to escape judgment. And it's to get in the ark. And the ark is Jesus. That's the only way of escape. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's sheer, unmitigated, undeserved grace. In the last week, I was talking with some friends who both are counselors, and they said that every counselor that they know, every, you know, the biblical counselors, every biblical counselor that they know, and even every counselor who isn't a biblical counselor that they know is absolutely worn out. The counselors are worn out because the people keep pounding on their doors looking for help. But what do the counselors do when they get worn out? See, that comes down to who's your counselor. He is the mighty God. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the Prince of Peace. (laughs) <laughs> so that's where we go and we go and get his counsel then we can keep our stability about us and not get overwhelmed and not get into despair and into deep deep depression where we lose hope and we lose all perspective when, when it's coming this fast and when the bad news keeps coming and when the Truth keeps being suppressed, and we continually, continually, continually are being lied to by those who should be telling the truth. And people's lives and little children, little children are afraid all of the time because if you can get the people fearful enough they will do anything to alleviate the fear, include give up the rights and liberties which they have been granted, and they will follow you. I mean, it's exactly what happened in Germany under Hitler. That nation was in ruins. Satan is not all that creative. He he tends to 
follow the same M.O. as you read history. But when people get afraid and they don't call on the name of the Lord, they panic and they make bad choices. And they don't follow the counsel of God, they follow the counsel of men. I, I think at times, Noah, at times he wondered if the rain would ever fall. It had to cross his mind. But he knew that God said it would, and so he kept at the task. But day after day after day of being ridiculed and persecuted and being mocked and being scorned, it would seem to me that after a while, he would get very, very weary and he would get troubled and he would have to fight it off. We don't, we, we don't know much more than what's just in Genesis 6 prior to the flood. But just reading between the lines, the guy was human. And when hardship and difficulty and ridicule and scorn and persecution comes our way, we get weary. We get absolutely weary and we get troubled. How long is this going to go on? Is there going to be any relief? It, it's just human nature. You have a quotient. You, you, have, you have so much that you can handle. Even uh, It's interesting, isn't it? What, years ago, <clears throat> in my early 30s, when I went through that depression, I'd never been through a depression in my life, ever. But I got, I got hit hard for about two and a half, three years. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. But it, it, it scared me because I had never cried three, four hours at a time before. But I was so um, weary. I was so troubled. I had lost all hope. And I didn't understand that God was at work in my life. I didn't understand that this was part of his plan. Um, he has courses that I couldn't take in seminary, that seminaries don't offer. Yet he has courses for his men that uh, there is a curriculum. And as you read the scriptures and you look in the lives of different men, you see that God will take them into the wilderness and God will kind of take everything away and God will strip them of friends and they'll be alone and they'll be obscure and uh, they, uh, they feel like they, they blew it and they'll never recover. And there's no way to move ahead. It's just going to be maintenance from now on. It's just survival. Uh, their best days are not ahead of them. Their best days are behind them because they screwed up. That's kind of the pattern. And it's, uh, it's just monotonous. It, monotonous. And nothing's happening. It's just the same old, same old. And you get weary and you get troubled. So I see those symptoms right now in a lot of Christian people. It's for sure in people who don't know the Lord. But I'm talking about Christian people. So Galatians 6, 9 says this, and let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Hmm. 
every day we get more bad news. Not one piece of bad news. I, I thought yesterday I was getting a piece of good news. I was checking a couple of websites, you know, and I read this thing that some group asked the feds to invoke the Patriot Act and to use the FBI against protesters. And I thought, great, they're finally going after those guys that burned and looted those cities and tore up those towns and destroyed the small business. They're going after those guys. And then I read the first paragraph, and it wasn't good news. But be see, because of the moral insanity, because of the refusal to acknowledge God and his word and his truth. So what are we doing? Oh, we're going to use the attorney general, who is the highest law official in the United States of America. We're going to use him to go after not the rioters, not the looters, but to go after parents. Parents who have had the audacity to go to school board meetings and stand up and speak out against Marxism and evil that is being mandated against their children. And so we're going to send the FBI, not to the border. We're going to send the FBI not to clear up the anarchist, the communist, those who want to tear down. We're not sending them after those guys. We're sending them after the parents who love their kids. Oh. And I could have pulled 10 other articles. But you read them. You saw them. $600. $600. You got $600 in your bank? That's not good. That's not good. Yeah. That's the last one I'll mention. And this just keeps coming day after day after day after day. So Galatians 6-9 is a good verse. And let us not grow weary in well-doing. Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to follow the Lord. We're trying to honor him as uh, fathers, as grandfathers. We're trying to follow Deuteronomy 6. We're, we're trying to teach our children the truth of God. Deuteronomy 6, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. And these words which I am commanding you today, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk in the way, as you rise up, as you sit down. We are to, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build. They're trying to tear down. But that's all they do is tear down. They tear down the truth of God. They tear down the law of God, which Deuteronomy 4 is very, very clear. The moral law of God is the best way to live so that it may go well for you and your children. But see, they don't want to submit to the law of God. They want to submit to themselves. They want to be their own gods. 
So are we going to struggle with being, getting weary in well-doing? Yeah, because we're trying to build. We're trying to build into these kids. We're trying to build into these grandkids. We're working not only to provide. We're working not only to uh, put a roof over the head, not only to think ahead and be wise and, you know, do some investment here and there as much as we can, all that stuff. We're, not only are we trying to do that, we're trying, we're trying to build spiritually. We're, we're trying to give them a foundation. We're trying to do Psalm 127 and 128. Two Psalms about family life. Not just for our kids, but for their kids. And what's happened is we're coming up against this resistance and all they're trying to do is tear that down. It, 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 we're kind of like Noah's. We are all, if you're following Christ, if you're in 100%, you're not just messing around. And this is not a time to be messing around. This is not a time to have some chick on the side you're having lunch with and you're hoping you can score with. You, 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 not a, you, you need to get past that. And what's going to happen is it's going to get hot enough where it's not going to be convenient to be a follower of Christ in the first place. You'd be out of your mind to be a follower of Christ. Unless it's true. And it's true. This is, this is one of the benefits of persecution is that it purifies the church. And the, uh, and the Judases start running. And the uh, Hymenaeuses start running. And Alexander the coppersmith, who did me much harm, he starts running. All these individuals that Paul named by name, who were false and who were counterfeit believers, they start running because it's not convenient. So Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So let's go to John 4. So John 4, we'll be in it next week. John 4 is where we find one of the most famous stories in the Bible where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a, it's a tremendous story. It's a tremendous chapter. There is, in the first six verses, before Jesus talks to the woman at the well, there are six verses prior to that, and these six verses, you could just very easily just skip right over. You could just fly over and say, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Let's get to the woman at the well and Jesus' conversation. But, you know, nothing in Scripture is, uh, is wasted. Nothing in Scripture is uh, to be ignored. It's all the Word of God. So John 4, verse 1, down to verse 6. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and that's just summarizing what was in John 3, if you recall. Next verse, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
Okay, now follow this now. Okay, this is where you could get lost and this is not significant. Actually, it is. And we'll really dig into this next week. I'm going to pull one nugget out of this tonight. He left Judea and went away again into Gal Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well is still there. You can visit Jacob's well. About 100 feet down, clear, spring-fed water. And that's at a premium in that part of Israel. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, about noon. So he'd been traveling, he'd been walking. It's hot. And he comes to that well, and he sits down. Why? Because he was weary. I want to give you three points tonight. And the first one is this. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Now, we've said this before in this study because that's in John 1. This is the incarnation. This is what Christmas is all about. Away in a manger, no crib for a babe, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. But as we all know, the interesting thing about his birth was that he had no human father. And when the angel announced it to Mary, you're going to have a child, and this is the promised one, she was stunned. And she said, how can this be, since I am a virgin? I've never had sexual relations with a man. How can this be? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow. So Jesus, who was God, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you get down to 14 of John 1, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully human. Second point. Jesus became weary. Jesus became weary. We just read it. That's significant. So Wayne Grudem, if you're looking for a little light bedtime reading, you can pick up <laughs> Systematic Theology, second edition by Wayne Grudem. He did the first edition. But if you know Wayne, you know, let me go back and revise a little bit. The guy's a workhorse. 
One of the great things about systematic theology is that it, it takes it and it systematizes it and breaks it down. In the section on the person of Christ, he has a subsection called Human Weaknesses and Limitations of Christ. Human weaknesses and limitations. Well, God wouldn't have limitations. Well, he's the God-man. This is why he got weary. So he makes a couple points. First one is this. Jesus had a human body. The fact that Jesus had a human body just like our human bodies is seen in many passages of Scripture. He was born just as all human babies are born, Luke 2, 7. He grew through childhood to adulthood just as other babies, uh, children grow. And the child became and grew strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, Luke 2, 40. Next paragraph. Jesus became tired just as we do, for we read in John 4, 6, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. He also became thirsty, for when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. That's John 19, 28. See, what we're doing is we're pulling from Scripture who Jesus is. He's the God-man. After he had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, we read that he was hungry. That's Matthew 4, 2. He was at times physically weak, for during his temptation in the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days, the point at which a human being's physical strength is almost entirely gone and beyond which irreparable physical harm will occur if the fast continues. At that time, angels came and were ministering to him. That's Matthew 4, 11. Another point, Jesus had a human mind. The fact that Jesus increased in wisdom, Luke 2.52, says that he went through a learning process just as all other children do. He learned how to eat, how to talk, how to read and write, and how to be obedient to his parents. See Hebrews 5.8. This ordinary learning process was part of the genuine humanity of Christ. Is that not wild or what? Because he, he was God. He is God. But he's the God-man. Next section. Jesus had a human soul with human emotions. You say, how does this relate to me? Well, you'll see here in just a second. We see several indications that Jesus had a human soul or spirit. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus said, now is, now is my soul troubled. Troubled, John 12, 27. John writes just a little later, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. John 13, 21. In both verses, the word troubled represents the Greek term terasso, a word that is often used of people when they are anxious or suddenly very surprised by danger. See, let's talk about us again just for a minute. Not only are we weary, but we're troubled. We're deeply troubled. Troubled like we've never been before. He's got a footnote here. You ever read footnotes? If you don't have much going on in your life, you can read a footnote. So I read footnotes. The word terasso, troubled, is used, for example, to speak of the fact that Herod was troubled when he heard that the wise men had come looking for the new king of the Jews, Matthew 2.3. The disciples were troubled when they suddenly saw Jesus walking on the sea and thought he was a ghost. They were troubled. Matthew 14. Zechariah was troubled when he suddenly saw an angel appear in the temple in Jerusalem. That was the father of John the Baptist. What's that angel doing in here? 
And the disciples were troubled when Jesus suddenly appeared among them after his resurrection. Well, I thought he was dead. It was astonishing. It was shocking. It troubled them until they until he told them what was going on. The word is also used in John 14, 1, and also verse 27, when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Turn with me to John 14 for a minute. Jesus is the great physician. He has given us his word and his promises as spiritual medicine to calm our hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows our fears. He knows our anxieties. So in John 14, this is interesting, verse 1, he has just told them in John 13 that he's going to go away and he's going to send the comforter. Now, this was not welcome news. They don't want him leaving. Watch what he says, 14.1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and where, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, let's put ourselves in their shoes. When he said they were, he was going away, they were troubled. Why were they troubled? They were troubled because of the implications of Jesus leaving for their short-term situation. He'd been with them for three years. Now he's leaving. Well, wait a minute. What's going to happen to us? What are we going to do? I mean, they're not thinking about eternity. They're not thinking about heaven. They're not thinking about in the sweet by and by. They're thinking about, you're gone. What are we going to do in the next week, in the next few weeks, in the next few months? They were troubled. It was short-term concern. How are we going to get through this stuff if you're leaving? That's where we are. That's exactly where we are. We're weary and we're troubled because as this stuff keeps coming, well, how am I going to navigate this? How am I going to get through this? How am I going to keep a job? How am I going to keep going? How am I going to stay out of jail? How am I? I mean, that's where we are. And if you're a pastor, you'd be crazy to be a pastor right now. This is why pastors need to be called. There's really good advice that C.H. Spurgeon gave to young men who thought they wanted to go in the ministry. And someone quoted it to me when I was a young guy. And the advice is, if you can do anything else, do it. Because it's a calling. Now, it's just not guys in ministry who are called, and there's that perception, and sometimes it's taught. But God calls us. God calls us to different spheres of influence. It's been real convenient to be a Christian. It's been convenient to be a pastor. Now, in Canada, it's already heating up. They're throwing pastors in jail in Canada, and they put them in solitary confinement. That's coming our way. It's coming. Just count, I mean, just count it. Well, that's way out there. Maybe. I don't think so. I mean, that's just my opinion. And once again, if you weren't depressed when you walked in here, <laughs> allow me to help you. 
All those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul said to Timothy. We haven't had it here, but it's coming. So we're going to have to count the cost, and we're going to have to make some decisions. We get weary and we get troubled just like these guys did in John 14. What are we going to do in the short term, Lord? We're thinking the same thing. What am I going to do short term? What are things going to be like in six months or a year? What kind of, I mean, my gosh, in 10 years, what's going to be going on? What's going to be going on with my, this little baby that was just born into our family? What kind of world are they going to live in? What's their future going to be like? But, it, but we tend to think short term. Okay. And what Jesus does, they're short term, they're, they're concerned about short term, and Jesus starts talking long term. And, and that, it's not adding up. Let not, and by the way, he knows they're thinking short term, because he knows all things. He understands every human heart. He understands your concern about the short term and about the next 90 days and about the next six months. And, you know, he, he gets that. He understands it. He knows us. He understands our thought from afar. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself. How does that help me right now? Here's how it helps you. If he's got your future wired in eternity, he's already got it set. He's already got it prepared. He's already got it fixed. Then that means, that means every step from here leading all the way to there, he's got nailed and handled. And there's a plan. And he knows exactly what he's doing in your life short term because he's got you fixed long term. You gotta reason it out. If he's got me set for eternity, then he can get me and sustain me until eternity happens. Does that make sense? See, that's logical. That's truth on fire. That's how you de-trouble. That's how you refresh when you're weary. And you just say, well, Lord, it's in your hands. It's in your hands. We have some friends that have lived in Paradise, California for 40 years. And they were in town recently. We had dinner with them. And that beautiful mountain town, just above Chico, California, gorgeous. There's a reason they call it paradise. That's the worst fire they've ever had in California. And I mean, they were showing us pictures off their back deck. I've sat on that back deck on that canyon many, many times. And they woke up and snapped this picture. Flames shooting up that canyon. And those winds can get up to 100 miles an hour. And it's pristine. But they woke up and those flames were, the flames were hundreds and hundreds of feet high. Coming fast. And that town, the pictures they showed us looked like Hiroshima. 
And the comment they made was, and, and, and they're still absorbing this. I mean, you know, you don't get over that in two weeks. They had a lot of friends die. They actually were taking a tour of the United States to visit friends who left California to move. Most of them because of the fire. And let's start somewhere else. As they were driving down, it's a two-laner out of Paradise down in the Chico. And it usually takes 20 minutes. At 12 noon, it was pitch black, and you could not see a thing in front of you at 12 noon. And propane tanks are exploding over there, and cars are exploding, and police can't get through, fire trucks can't. You, you, you can understand. But there was a sense that, Lord, you've got this. You've got this. My times are in your hand. And then, then they said, you know, the, the thing that we've taken away from this is just how vulnerable our lives really are. How vulnerable we are. We think we're so secure, but we're not. We've got the Lord. He's our security. We, we, may down, we may get down this mountain, or we may not. It took them four hours to go what normally would be 20 minutes. Are we going to get down this hill? Are we going to live through this? Are we going to get through this? You know what the Lord Jesus says to us? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If we're not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Yeah, that's for his people. Here's my third point. Jesus understands when we become weary and troubled. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews 4. So what are our three points? Well, the first one is Jesus was fully God and fully human. Second point, Jesus became weary. What's the third point? Jesus understands when we become weary and troubled. All right, Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you know that the Roman Catholic Church historically has taught that Jesus is uh, somewhat stern and that he is somewhat aloof and he is somewhat unapproachable? And that's why in the 1800s, they came up with all this new stuff about Mary and that you can pray to Mary because Mary is more approachable than Jesus. You don't get that out of the Bible. That's just a flat out lie. He was born without sin, but they had to then make her be born without sin. So you see one lie leads to another. Watch this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because he was fully God and fully man. The, the, the devil took him into the wilderness for 40 days and tempted him. And it was a true temptation, yet without sin. 
You say, man, this is pretty deep. It is pretty deep, but it's, what, it's the truth. The problem is we got limited bandwidth. Then it says this. See, first of all, but he does sympathize. We have a high priest who, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, our weaknesses. He does sympathize because he was fully man. He got weary. He knows what it is for us to get weary because he experienced the same thing. He got troubled. So he understands exactly what I'm going through when I'm troubled. You see, there's this identification. He does sympathize. He does get it. You can go to him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Uh, verse 16 is tremendous. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our, to help in time of need. Uh, th this can be rendered, let us draw near to the throne so that we may, through mercy, receive a well-timed help. There were two million of them for 40 years in the wilderness. How do you feed two million people? And they never missed, they never missed a meal, not once. By the way, their sandals never wore out. They were fed not by Costco, not by Samaritan's Purse, not by flying in, you know, cargo jet. They were, it was called manna. 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 What's manna? It's a well-timed help. Oh, and Jesus is the bread of life. So I have a question for you, you don't need to respond, just in your own mind. The question would be this, have you ever prayed and asked God to use you? I imagine many guys in here have prayed that. Lord, I, just, I would like to be used, I'd like my life to make a difference for you somehow. That, that would just be a great honor if you could use me in some fashion, in some way. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I need to say something about this word, comfort. Because when you're weary and you're troubled, what you need is comfort, right? You need some comfort. We think comfort, we think comfort food, we think, our wives think blankets and a fire and snuggle and all that stuff. That's comfort. Not here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all. Fortification. All strength. He strengthens us. He fortifies us in our trouble. He fortifies us in our affliction, whatever it is. That's the meaning of the word. Watch this. Who comforts us in all our affliction. So let me ask you something. What's your affliction? We've all got this corporate affliction going on right now in this country where we are um, we're weary of it. We're, we're troubled by it. 
the, the short-term prospects, the long-term prospects. But, but then individually, you have things. You're, you're, you have stuff in your life that the guy next to you doesn't have. Some of you, it's your wife with uh, stage four cancer, or you got the cancer, or it's, uh, it's a family split like you've never had over mask or vaccines or it's just ripping your family apart or you raised your kids to know the Lord and they're so far from the Lord they have no interest and they don't want to hear it they think they wonder about your walk with the Lord that's how divisive this is all get I don't know what your stuff is I don't know what your affliction is but everybody's got it everybody in here now watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, of all fortification, of all strength, who comforts us in all our affliction. Watch this. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So this is where I ask you, have you ever asked God to use you? This is how God uses us. He takes us, oh, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if God could use me like Billy Graham? Well, that's Billy Graham how great that was. He's with the Lord now. But, you know, that's a pretty tough calling. Be on the road all, this, all the, away from your family, away from your kids. I, I mean, he touched a lot of people, but they, that family paid a price for that. That was tough on them. You read their biographies, they're, they're very transparent, very honest people. That was rough. That was hard for all of them. Oh, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, maybe the first three or four months. But 40, 50 years of that? See, what I'm saying is, we, oh, God used me. We want him to catapult us to something great. What he does is he takes us through the wilderness of affliction. And what he does is he puts us somewhere we don't want to be and gives us something we don't want to deal with that rips our guts out. Why did this marriage go bad? Why did this business fail? I put everything I had to it. Why are my buddies? It didn't happen to them. Why did it happen to me? And we, we all have these individual things. But you ask God to use you, and he's using you. And he's got a plan for you that's different from the guy next to you and the guy behind you. And he's calling the shots. My times are in your hand. Psalm 138.8, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Not everyone is sold into slavery at 17, but Joseph was. That was God's path for him in order to use him. But God takes his men through a wilderness in a place where you do not want to be. He weakens you, and then he strengthens you, and that strength, which is comfort, which you get from him, then down the road, after you think you'll never be used, and you think you're a total failure and totally disqualified, you find out that's what will qualify you. Seminary degrees don't qualify you for ministry. Suffering equips you for ministry. And that which you've received from the Lord, you can then comfort and pass it on to someone who's in great affliction and they think there's no one out there who understands and you get it. And then if you look at verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Watch this. That we were burdened excessively 
beyond our strength. You know what that means? He was weary. He was weary. He was beyond his strength. I don't know if I can take another day of this. I mean, let's be real honest here. Paul wanted to die. He said, he didn't say that. Well, keep reading. He does say it. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. I want out of here. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Now watch this. So why do we go through this stuff? We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. So let's wrap this up. We've got our current scenario stuff that we're facing. Have you, in your past, previous chapters, you look back, have you ever faced something that absolutely threatened to smother you and, and you, you're not even sure you'd survive? And then what happened? I mean, you were stripped of a lot of stuff, maybe everything, and you call on the Lord. And what did he do? He delivered you. And has that happened once in your life, or twice, or five times, or ten? Every time that happens, you know what it does? It builds your faith. And stuff that you're facing now that would have shaken you to the core 20 years ago didn't, didn't quite have the same impact. Why? Because I know whom I have believed. And he, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. All this stuff God's going to use for his glory and for the good of his people. All of it. We just want to get on board. And follow him and obey him and submit to him. And he'll take care of us. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that you get every guy in this room. You get us more than we get ourselves. You pursued us. We didn't pursue you. How grateful we are. What a great God. What a great Savior you are. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they will not faint. We wait on you, Lord. We're going to go home and we're going to get some rest and we'll wake up in the morning and we'll start all over again. But we thank you that you're up all night and when we get up, you will be already there. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And we pray this prayer of thanksgiving in the name of Jesus. Amen.